Well, today's Easter, and that means that uh, around the world there are literally billions of people gathering, just like we have this morning, to remember that Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross, but he didn't only die, he also rose from the dead. And the reason we Christians make such a big deal out of Easter is because of what it represents. The significance of Jesus' resurrection is that it means that no matter what circumstances you are facing in your life right now, you can have real hope for this life and beyond. That's the message of Easter. So uh, let me begin this morning by reading you a letter. This letter was sent by the Department of Health and Human Services to someone who lived in Greenville County, South Carolina. The letter reads the following. Dear sir or madam, your food stamps will be stopped effective March 1st because we received notice that you have passed away. You wonder why you'd even need to send someone a letter in that case. They're not going to read it, right? But anyway, the letter goes on. You may reapply if your circumstances change. So that, that's either a mistake here or somebody at Greenville County Health and Human Services is expecting a resurrection. Now, now, that was a mistake, right? But you know what's not a mistake, and this is true, that each and every one of you, someday, your circumstances will change. Your circumstances will change from what they are right now, and each and every one of you here, you will one day pass away. Brooke Shields, uh, the famous actress from the 80s and the 90s, when she was speaking for an anti-smoking campaign, and she said the following. You know, it's good advice here. She says, smoking kills. And if you're killed, you've lost a very important part of your life. <laughs> it's very true. Good point, Brooke Shields. If you die, that can really ruin your day. Uh, it can change your life a lot. I don't know if any of you have seen this, the statistics on death, but they're quite staggering. 10 out of 10 people die. That's 100%. It's, you know, some pretty strong statistics there. And one day, you too will die. And God's word has this to say. It says that it is appointed for every person to die once. And after that comes judgment. What that means is that one day, each and every one of us in here will stand before God. For some people, that's great news. That's something that fills their heart with joy and hope. It's something that they're looking forward to because they put their faith in the gospel. They know that they can stand before God with confidence, unashamed because they have been forgiven of their sins and they have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. But for other people, that prospect, that, that idea that one day they will die and they will have to stand before God and give account and face judgment, that's something that worries them. It fills their heart with anxiety, even fear, trepidation. It's something that they're not looking forward to. For me, at one point in my life, that was me. But I'm here to tell you today that your circumstances can change. You can find hope and peace. You can find joy and true purpose because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the most famous clock in the world is in London, England. It's called Big Ben. Probably you've heard of it, seen pictures of it. Some of you maybe even seen it in person. Big Ben towers over the city of London, over Westminster Abbey, over the Parliament there on the River Thames. And the thing about Big Ben that, uh, that many people don't know, that even many Londoners don't realize, is that the music in the chimes that keeps the time for Big Ben is actually the tune of an old hymn. Did you know that? And you know what the hymn is? The hymn is, I know that my Redeemer lives. Big Ben plays that song 
all day long. I know that my Redeemer lives. That means that every day, Londoners set their clocks and their schedules, and they live their lives based on this declaration that rings out over the city all day long that Jesus has risen from the grave. And I would suggest to you today that you do the same. You do the same. Set the time, set the course of your life according to the greatest event of all events, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know that song which is played by Big Ben, the song, I Know That My Redeemer Lives. The, the title for that song, the basis of that song, is a passage from the Bible, which was actually written uh, thousands of years before Jesus even walked the earth. It's based on a quote from the Old Testament book of Job. And if you've got your Bible on you, would you please turn with me to Job chapter 19. If you don't have your Bible on you, that's all right. We're going to have the verses projected up here on the screen for you. So we'll be in Job 19. Here's the quote. Uh, from verse 25 to 27. Job speaking, and he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. You know, the book of Job is really the story of a man who had it all. He had everything. He had a great life. Job had great kids. He had seven sons and three daughters. Job had a thriving business with many employees. He owned a lot of animals, which at that time meant a lot of wealth. He owned huge tracts of land. And this man, Job, he was known in his day as the greatest man in the East. But the thing about Job is this. He wasn't just successful at business. Job was also a man who sincerely loved God. He, he tried to live a right life before God. You know, for him, he, was a, he tried to live a morally upright life, and he prayed and worshiped as a regular part of his life. But one day, tragedy struck Job's life. One day, out of the blue, this messenger comes to Job with this message that says, Job, you know, sorry to tell you this, but some raiders, some thieves have broken into your land and, you know, broken into your property, and they've stolen all of your oxen and all of your donkeys, and they killed your servants. That same day, Job got another message from another messenger that said another group of thieves had come into another part of his land, and they had carried off all of his camels. And then, if that weren't bad enough, he gets another report that very same day that all of his children had been together eating and drinking in a particular house, and this great windstorm had come up, and the house had collapsed, and everyone inside had died. Everything that Job had in this world, it was gone in one day. And Job grieved. You know, that's probably an understatement. It says that Job tore his clothes and shaved his head as, as outward signs of his, of his grief. But yet we also read about Job that he never cursed the Lord throughout this whole thing. Well, you might say, well, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, he lost all his stuff. And man, that's terrible that his children died. But, but at least Job still got his health, right? Wrong. Wrong. After this happened, Job's health went downhill as well. He developed this disease that caused him to break out in, in uh, sores all over his body. Well, you might say, well, at least he still got his wife, right? The love of his life. Well, yes, he still has his wife. But guess what? This is what his wife tells him uh, there in the first part after all these bad things happen. She says, Job, look, man, you've lost everything. Your health is a mess. There's basically no reason for you to continue on going on living. You should just curse God and die. That's her loving spousal advice to her husband. 
Honey, I think you should just be angry at God and then kill yourself, dear. Oh, well, thanks, hon. Love you, you know. So that's the setting for the book of Job. It's a reminder to us of how fragile this life is. Maybe some of you have experienced that yourselves. How everything can be lost in an instant. And then Job's friends come around. And, and hey, you know, it's always good to have friends around when you're going through a hard time, right? Well, wrong, again, in this case, because Job's friends come around, they start telling him, wow, man, wow, this is bad. Like, Job, man, you must have done something really bad to deserve something like this happening to you, right? You, we thought you were a pretty good guy, but I mean, this kind of stuff doesn't happen to us. So, you know, we figure... You must have done something. You must have some skeletons in the closet, man. You must have some deep, dark secrets. You must have done something very bad to deserve this kind of fate. That's just what you need when tragedy strikes, right? Friends to come, out, come around and, and uh, tell you that kind of stuff. But Job responds and says, no, guys, really, I, I've, I've always been a decent person. I don't have any skeletons in my closet. You know, the story of Job is really the story of how sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sure, Job wasn't a perfect person, but the point of this story is that when tragedy strikes, it isn't necessarily that God's punishing people for something they've done wrong. Sometimes it's just the fact that we live in a broken world where sin and death and pain and suffering are the present realities that we all have to face and deal with. And that is why what Job says here in chapter 19, that scripture we just read, that's why it's so important. What Job is expressing is that he has hope beyond this life. He has hope beyond the grave. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last upon the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, I know that in my flesh I will see God. And he says, oh, how my heart yearns within me. I long for that day when God will redeem me. Job had everything that this world has to offer. He had family, he had money, he had comfort, he had financial security, he had good health, and he lost all of it in an instant. Why should Job go on? What is the point? Job understood that this life is not all that there is. You know that? He understood this life is not all there is. Job had the hope of the gospel, which is hope which extends beyond the grave. Hope which is not just hope that someday maybe my circumstances will get better, but hope which extends beyond this life. Job had the hope of eternal life. It was that hope of eternal life that kept Job going. You know that? It was that hope of eternal life for which he did not lose, he did not fall into just utter despair. It was that hope which gave purpose and meaning and perspective to his life. You know, all the other stuff, the houses and the money and the possessions, that's all they were. They were just stuff. You know that? And stuff by nature is temporary. Job said, I came into this world with nothing and I can't take anything with me when I leave. So he says, my hope is not going to be in this world. My hope will be in God, that God is my redeemer and that he will redeem my soul. Jesus said this, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? What does it benefit you if you gain everything this world has to offer but you lose your soul? Job understood that. He understood that whether you're rich or you're poor, in the end, it doesn't matter. You came into this world with nothing, and you can't take anything with you when you leave. And one day, each and every one of us are going to stand before God. 
Like I said earlier, for some people, that, that thought that they'll have to stand before God one day, that, that's something which causes them great anxiety and concern, distress. It's not something they want to think about. But for Job here, the prospect of standing before God, it, it was something that filled his heart with, with, uh, with joy and purpose and hope and perspective. He says, my heart yearns within me. I want to see God because I know that he is my redeemer and my redeemer lives. Job knew that God was the redeemer of his life. Now what's a redeemer? A redeemer is someone who pays the necessary price for you to set you free from some sort of bondage, right? Kind of like if you went to jail and, and someone came and paid your bond to get you out of jail. That's the basic idea here behind this idea of a redeemer. It's someone who pays the price that you can't pay to release you, set you free from some kind of legal obligation or burden that you're under. And this idea of a redeemer was actually very common in the ancient Middle East, especially in regard to land ownership. If you fell on hard times, if you racked up a lot of debt, then, then you could face grave consequences. You could face imprisonment and even death. But if there was someone, if there was someone who was willing to come along and take your debt upon themselves so that they could free you from that obligation, that person would be your redeemer. But in order for them to do that, number one, they have to have the means, the resources to take on your debt. And number two, they have to be willing to do it. Job says an interesting thing here, though. He says, he takes this idea of a redeemer, and he says, God is my redeemer. God is the redeemer of my life. He had faith that God would pay the price for his soul to set him free from this debt of sin that he had so that he could stand before God unashamed and have eternal life. That is the hope of the gospel. That is what Easter is all about, that God himself is the redeemer of your soul and that your redeemer lives. You know that the annals of history are full of stories of men who wanted to be gods. But there is only one God who became a man, Jesus Christ. God became a man so that he could redeem us from our debt of sin by taking that debt upon himself. You know, Job probably had no idea just how prophetic the words were that he spoke when he spoke them here in Job 19. Many years after Job's life ended, as you know the story, in the town of Bethlehem, a child was born in the humblest of circumstances. But that child born in those humble circumstances would grow up to become the most influential person who has ever walked the face of this earth. More books have been written about this one man than about anybody else who's ever lived. More songs have been sung about this man than about any other man who's ever lived. He's so significant, in fact, that we divide all of history based on before him and after him. That's a big deal, right? Right? And so, of course, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jesus of Nazareth. But the question is, what was it that made this man so significant? Was it his teachings? I mean, surely there have been great philosophers and teachers throughout history. It must be something more about Jesus than just what he taught that made him so significant. You know, the thing that made Jesus of Nazareth so significant is that he was the very thing which Job hoped for back in the Old Testament. He was the thing which Job hoped for. He was God come to us to redeem us. And he redeemed us how? By giving his life for ours as a ransom. 
by taking the burden of our sin upon himself. Your sin, my sin, he, the, the curse of our sin, the curse of death, he took it upon himself so that we could be forgiven and set free and have eternal life. You know, have you ever thought about why it was that Jesus wore a crown of thorns upon his head? Have you ever thought about that? Now, obviously, the Romans put this crown of thorns on Jesus' head as a way of mocking him because he had been, you know, hailed the king of the Jews. And so they, they considered him an insurrectionist of sorts. This was a way of mocking him, putting this crown on his head. But there was a much, there's a much more significant meaning, I believe, to the crown of thorns. You see, back way back in the book of Genesis, we, we read about how when sin entered into the world, it, it brought all of creation under a curse. The curse of death. And you know what the symbol of that curse was? Thorns. Do you ever think about that? The symbol of the curse of death in the beginning of the Bible is thorns, right? The, the thorns are the symbol of the curse. So think about the symbolism here. These thorns are placed on Jesus' head. Why? It's symbolic of the fact that he's taking the curse, our curse, upon himself there on the cross in order that we might be set free from it. He's redeeming us. He's our redeemer. The one who not only has the means and the ability to redeem us, but is also willing to redeem us because he loves you. You know that? He loves you. Remember what Job said? He said, I know that my redeemer lives. That is the message of Easter. Not only did Jesus die on the cross for your sins, not only did he take your curse upon himself so you could be redeemed and set free, not only did Jesus die, he also rose again. He defeated death. The Bible says that death is swallowed up in victory. And it's because our Redeemer lives that we can have hope beyond the grave, that we're able to have the hope of eternal life. During the 1994 Miss USA contest, uh, Miss Alabama was asked the following question. If you could live forever, would you and why? If you could live forever, would you and why? Her answer was the following. I would not live forever because we should not live forever because if we were supposed to live forever, then we would live forever, but we cannot live forever. That's why I would not live forever. <laughs> that really clears it up there, doesn't it? Just, uh, Miss Alabama, you seem so confused, right? But you know what? In a way, she's right. I'm not actually sure what her answer was, but whatever it was, there is a point there, and that is this, that our lives are finite, right? And there is a day appointed for every one of us when we will die. But because our Redeemer lives, because death has been defeated, there, you know, we can indeed live forever. In 1980, or I'm sorry, in 1829, a little bit before 1989, uh, so in 1829, there was a man named George Wilson, and George Wilson was convicted in the state of Pennsylvania for robbing the mail and threatening the life of the mail carrier, and for this crime, uh, George Wilson was sentenced to be hanged. Fortunately, though, for George Wilson, the president of the United States at the time was uh, Andrew Jackson, and Andrew Jackson granted George Wilson, a presidential pardon. Oddly enough, though, and, and this is the only time that this has happened in American history, George Wilson refused the pardon. He said, thanks, but no thanks, right? And, and well, the government wasn't really sure what to do. I mean, should they still execute this man? I mean, the president gave a pardon to save his life. Should they still kill this man against the president's wishes? But the man himself had not 
accepted the pardon. So what do they do? So they took this case actually before the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court, uh, the justice at the time was a man named John Marshall and he issued the following ruling. He said, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential and delivery is not complete without acceptance. It may then be rejected by the person to whom it's tendered and if it be rejected, we have discovered no power in a court to force it on him. So George Wilson, against the desire and against the efforts of the President of the United States to save him, he was hanged because he refused to receive and accept the redemption which was offered to him. Let me tell you this, in the same way, your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, he has paid the price to redeem you. The question is, will you accept that redemption or will you refuse it? Now you might wonder, who in their right mind would refuse such a pardon? Who in their right mind would refuse redemption? Yet many people do. How about you? The question remains. Ask yourself this question. How about you? Will you receive the pardon which has been granted to you? Will you receive the redemption that Jesus Christ has purchased for you on the cross? You know, for many people, uh, the issue isn't that they don't want to be redeemed. The issue is that they aren't sure if this redemption that's promised through Jesus Christ is for real or not. I mean, how can they be sure that Jesus is who I claim that he is, who Christians say that he is? I mean, there are a lot of religions out there, right? How can anybody be sure that Jesus is who he claimed to be? How can anybody be sure that, that what Christians say is really true? That by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you can actually be forgiven of your sins and saved and have eternal life. How can we know? I'll tell you how you can know. The redemption of Jesus Christ. Or, I'm sorry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me explain. A lot of people throughout history have made huge outlandish claims. Here's a few for you. Charlie Sheen uh, made some claims. He claimed that he has tiger's blood and that he is invincible. Uh, Kim Jong-il, he's always a good one for outlandish claims, uh, is a former leader of North Korea. He claimed that he invented the hamburger and that he uh, played golf only one time in his life in which he shot 38 under par and 11 holes in one. And he said after he played that first game, he got so bored with golf because it's so easy that he decided to retire for life. So uh, when Jesus comes around and claims to be God, right, he claims to be the savior of the world who has come to redeem us, how can we know that what he says is true? Well, do you know that people actually asked that question of Jesus while he was alive? People asked him that question, as you naturally would, right? They said, Jesus, you're making all these gigantic claims about who you are, why you've come. How can we know that anything you are saying is actually true? And Jesus said this, he said, here is the sign I will give you that what I say is true, that I am who I say I am. He says, destroy my body and in three days I will raise it up again. In other words, Jesus said, here's the proof for you that I really am who I claim to be. This will be the proof that, that what I say is true. If I die and then three days later I come back to life, then you'll know that I was who I said I was. And, and if not, then, then forget it, you know? And what that means is this, that all of Christianity really hinges on the event of Jesus' resurrection. It all hinges on this one event. So if you'll turn with me again in your Bibles, this time to Matthew chapter 28. This is the familiar story of the resurrection. 
And it's told from the perspective of two ladies who went on Easter Sunday to visit the tomb of Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 28, the first uh, several verses. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. And he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid, but go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, for there they will see me. These ladies have gone here expecting to find a closed tomb. They, they've gone here expecting to find a tomb blocked by a great stone guarded by Roman soldiers. But instead, what do they find? They find an empty tomb. They find a stone that's been rolled away. And, and instead of Roman guards, they meet an angel. Later on, after they, they leave that place to go and tell people what they've seen, they, they actually meet up with Jesus Christ, who was dead and now is alive. And there are three things that they do here, and this is how we're going to close. Three things that these women do, and I would suggest for you this morning that for you and I also, these are the three things to do on Easter. Three things to do on Easter. Number one, in verse six, they're told, come and see. This is the first thing you do on Easter. Come and see. The stone of the tomb was rolled away, not so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that people could look inside and see for themselves that Jesus was not there, that he had risen from the dead. You know, there are 300 references roughly in the New Testament to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the early Christians, this was at the very center of what it meant to be a Christian, to have faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, they believed in him because of the resurrection. In fact, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, if anyone doubts the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, he says there are literally hundreds of people who saw Jesus after he rose from the dead with their own eyes. You can go talk to them. They're eyewitnesses. They're still alive. Go ask them if you don't believe. The first thing to do on Easter is to come and see. Come and see the proof that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Study up on it. Check out the facts. Do you know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most historically reliable events in ancient history? So come and see. Come and see for yourself that your Redeemer lives. Come and see for yourself how much God loves you. Come and see for yourself that death has been defeated, that in Jesus Christ there is hope beyond the grave. The second thing to do on Easter, we read in verses 8 and 9, rejoice and worship. Rejoice and worship. That's why we're here this morning, by the way. Having heard this good news that Jesus was alive, what did they do? They rejoiced. They rejoiced. And then what? Having come face to face with Jesus, what did they do? They worshiped. That's what we want to do here on Easter as well. Rejoice because our Redeemer lives. Rejoice because he's redeemed us from the curse of sin and death. Rejoice because he has rescued us. And he's rescued your life and set you free. Rejoice because of the promise of eternal life. But don't stop there. 
Come before him and worship him. Worship him for who he is. Worship him because he's great. Worship him because his love is greater than death. Worship him because he is able to break the curse and redeem your life from the grave. And the third and final thing, go and tell. Both the angel and Jesus himself, they told this same thing to these women. Go and tell. Once you've come and you've seen, once you've responded by rejoicing and worshiping, now it's time to go and tell. If this message is true, it's not something you can keep to yourself. If it's true, it's the greatest news in the world. And if it's true, it is truly the hope of the world. So we need to go and we need to tell. Spread that news. Don't keep it to yourself. There are a lot of people out there who need to hear it. There are people who need to be reminded. So go and tell. This is what we're here to do on Easter. Jesus is risen. Our Redeemer lives. So come and see what God has done for you. And come and see. And then once you've come and you've seen, then rejoice and worship. And once you've rejoiced and worshiped, it's time to go and tell. And don't keep such good news to yourself. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you that you are risen from the grave. And we thank you, Lord, that because of your resurrection, we can have the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for that hope. We thank you that because you've risen from the dead, because death has been swallowed up in victory, Lord, that we can have hope which goes beyond the things of this life. We can have hope for eternal life. And Lord, I want to pray that this morning, if there's anyone here with us who hasn't yet made a confession of Jesus Christ, who hasn't yet dedicated themselves in their hearts, that they will follow Jesus, that they will believe in the gospel for their salvation. Lord, would you do that work this morning? Would they not leave without having made that decision in their heart? Lord, we pray for everybody who's here this morning. Lord, would you help us that as we have come and seen, now, Lord, we want to again rejoice and worship, but help us as we go that we would go and tell for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.